Morning! Uh, see the groundhog? Yeah. Think it'll be an early spring. Didn't we do this yesterday? I don't know what you mean. No. Ah! Don't mess with me, pork chop. <sighs> what day is this? It's February 2nd. Groundhog Day. All nature seems at work. Slugs leave their lair. The bees are stirring. Birds are on the wing. And winter slumbering in open air wears on his smiling face a dream of spring. And I the while, the sole and busy thing, nor honey make, nor pair, nor build, nor sing. Yet while I ken the banks where amaranths blow, have traced the fount whence streams of nectar flow. Bloom, O ye amaranths, bloom for whom ye may, for me ye bloom not, glide rich streams away. With lips unbrightened, ruthless brow, I stroll. And would you learn the spells that drowse my soul? Work without hope draws nectar in a sieve, and hope without an object cannot live. Hello, uh, my name is Colin Waters, and I'm going to claim I'm a writer and editor. Prove me wrong. And I'm Adam O'Davis. I'm a teacher, a photographer, and a poet. Uh, my debut collection, Index of Haunted Houses, was published by Saraband Books last year. The poem that I read at the top of the show is Work Without Hope by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Why am I reading that? Well, part of uh, this poem was recited by Bill Murray towards the end of his 1993 Groundhog Day, which is the subject of this episode. The sense of hopelessness Coleridge describes is, if you've seen the film, apropos. Now, in previous episodes of this series, we've used films, normally films that were blockbusters in the year they were released. Uh, we use these films to talk about aspects of poetry. So we use Face Off to talk about identity, or we use Zodiac to discuss how poets interact with their audiences. Today, I want to make the argument that Groundhog Day acts like a poem itself, as well as having something to say about redrafting. And we could maybe take a sideways look if we've got time towards the end at light verse, not least because comic poems, much like comic films, don't get the respect they deserve. It's true, but uh, as always, before we get to the poetic nitty gritty, some facts on the film itself, uh, the most maddening of which for me is that despite being released in February 1993, Groundhog Day was not actually in theaters on February 2nd, 1993, which was, of course, Groundhog Day that year. Whoever was in charge of marketing this film should have been fired. <laughs> they got the month right. They just didn't get the day. I, I don't know how that, uh, that, that happens there. In any case, though, the, the film managed to carve out a niche for itself in a year that included such pop cultural behemoths as Schindler's List. Philadelphia, Jurassic Park, Falling Down, Bram Stoker's Dracula, A Few Good Men, Dazed and Confused, and my personal favorite, Cliffhanger, which would have been the perfect film for a future podcast in which we explore how long the average poet could hang from the side of a mountain before losing their grip. Well, Groundhog Day was directed by Harold Ramis, who worked with Murray on Stripes, Caddyshack, and Ghostbusters, and the script was by Danny Rubin. It's worth noting that Rubin's original spec script, which is a kind of cinematic demo tape, was much darker and more philosophical in tone, perhaps because it grappled more truthfully with the nightmarish prospect of living the same day over again forever. Given that we'll be focusing on Groundhog Day as a 100-minute metaphor for revision, it must be mentioned that life, in Rubin's case, imitated his art as he worked closely with both Ramus and Murray to redraft the script again and again so that it would fit their warring visions. Ramus apparently wanted more comedy, while Murray wanted more pathos. This, I think, accounts for the film's tonal shifts between what I consider to be a pretty unfunny comedy or a fairly humorous tragedy. As everyone who has or hasn't seen the film knows, 
Bill Murray plays Phil Connors, a dyspeptic TV weatherman whose passions in life are sarcasm and sexual harassment, both of which he must cure himself of by trying again and again to win the heart of his boss, Rita Hansen, played by Andy McDowell. We'll talk more about Murray, who is, despite all odds, an estimable poetry fan later in the show. But suffice to say, outside of Ghostbusters and his work with Wes Anderson, this is his best known film. And this film's importance to our common vernacular, Groundhog Day is not just a film, but a phrase or for a state of repetition. And Hollywood cannot be overstated. After all, this film gave us the phrase that sums up any state of repetition while single-handedly inspiring a slew of copycats. Palm Springs, Two Distant Strangers, Source Code, Happy Death Day, Edge of Tomorrow, along with episodes of Buffy, Angel, Star Trek The Next Generation, Supernatural, and Russian Doll. Now, the plot. The plot, if you've never seen Groundhog Day, and I don't know how you've managed that, but here we go. The plot takes Murray's character to Punxsutawney, a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, as I think we've mentioned, he's a local TV weatherman, but that doesn't stop uh, Phil uh, from believing himself to be above just about everyone he ever encounters, especially the folksy locals he finds himself amongst in Punxsutawney. When the film uh, joins Phil, he's already been sent to cover Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney three years in a row. This is his fourth, and you know he's obviously not happy about it. Groundhog Day, by the way, um, before it became uh, you know a, a, a phrase meaning to repeat the day over and over again um it's an annual celebration where locals bring out a groundhog called punxsutawney phil and as local lore has it if he sees his shadow it means the winter will last another six weeks how they can tell whether a groundhog has seen its shadow i don't know but there you go do they have that in scotland <laughs> is, it, is, is that an international tradition or is it just states i think it, i don't even think we've got groundhogs <laughs> never mind groundhog day we'd have to have a big rat <laughs> big rat day big, big rat day that doesn't have the same ring does it no not quite <laughs> phil himself is a bit of a rat actually he's obnoxious to everyone he meets including poor rita he tries to leave town as quickly as possible and the problem is he gets foiled first by uh, a pretty big storm uh, ironically which he didn't see coming uh, he goes to bed and wakes up and it's the same day again it's the second of february again it's groundhog day again and every time he tries to leave town, he's foiled. Uh, it gets to the end of the day, he falls asleep, and it's a day again, 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 2nd of February, over and over again. And he has to present the weather, the news segment at the start, again and again and again. Uh, as he slowly comes to realise he's trapped in a time loop, Phil's, um, uh, first he's confused, uh, then he decides to exploit the loop to seduce women before falling into despair and trying to take his life. Finally, I think, and this is the thing that um, I think is a real hook for the film for most people who watch it, uh, Phil realises with all the time that he has at his disposal, he can learn to do all sorts of things, including playing piano, ice sculpting, and in a deleted scene, he learns pool hall hustling. I think this is the element of the film that appeals to me the most, having the, the time to finally learn a language or become good at table tennis, something like that. Now, this time loop that we've mentioned, it's never explained why Phil ends up in a time loop. And, and equally, we have no idea how long he's in the time loop. Some people think it's 10 years. Some people think it's 30. Some people think it's 10,000 years. It's that mysterious quality, you know, no idea what's caused the time loop, no idea how long Phil is in this time loop. That mysterious quality, I, I, I associate that more with, with poetry or, or maybe, you know, an art house kind of film rather yeah. than a mainstream studio film. 
And that sort of mysterious quality, I think we've talked about this before um, as well, Adam, on previous things. Yeah. It's that thing about good poems, the ones I like anyway. They have something about themselves that they don't explain that draws you in. Yeah, I, I agree. It's that, uh, it's that je ne sais quoi, right? Mm, absolutely. So, Adam, when we were discussing films to cover on the show, uh, films that illustrate aspects of poetry, we were both drawn to Groundhog Day for a number of reasons, not least it seemed to me that it was a really nice metaphor for redrafting, you know, going over and over the same material and maybe trying something a bit different this way, a bit different that way, but trying to get towards the best version of the day. Many many religious groups see it, um, Groundhog Day as a spiritual metaphor, but for me, it's, you know, a guy in front of a, a pen and a pad or a typewriter and just going over the words, is that the best order? Can I do something else? Maybe I should just scrap it entirely and, and start again. That That's where I see it. Now, Adam, you know, as the actual proper writer here uh, on the podcast, do you find getting towards a version of the poem that sets you free from having to write and rewrite that poem, do you find that as painful as Phil finds inching towards his liberation from the loop? I think Phil and I differ on the definition of pain in, in, in this instance. Uh, you know, for me, the opportunity to work on a poem again and again is a pleasure and, and, and a luxury. Obviously, you know, time is not something that I often have much of. Um, you know, but there are plenty of phases to, to go through with a poem, most of them involving frustration and, and doubt rather than, uh, I guess, uh, learning to play table tennis better or, or uh, you know, stealing money from the back of armored cars like he does in the movie. I'd say I'm largely at peace with those phases. I know from experience that the only way a poem truly happens is through revision. Um, and, and much as I hate to burst any listener's bubble, the notion of a poem as the product of an immaculate conception and delivery is largely a myth. Poetry takes a lot of work. You know, but your question gets me thinking too about what Auden said that Valerie had said, uh, a poem is never finished, only abandoned. You know, I think this quote reads a bit pessimistic if taken at face value, but underneath its face, if I can be so bold as to make a reference to our second episode, uh, what this quote suggests is that poems by design are never complete. Uh, when something's complete, there's no more juice in it, there's no more potential. And if any poem felt truly complete, I doubt any reader or writer would return to it. Uh, you know, what would there be in it to wonder about? It reminds me of how Persian rug makers always leave one thread unstitched because perfection is reserved for God. In other words, perfection is inhuman. However, the striving for perfection is deeply human. So in this idea, we have the tension that makes poetry possible, seeking for a subjective perfection on the page, all the while knowing that if a universal perfection were reached, then the poem would be rendered inert. So for me, revision is the act of attempting the impossible while acknowledging its impossibility, all the while hoping for its possibility. And you know, no wonder poets can be such head cases in this case. Well, that kind of describes the situation Phil is in, attempting the impossible yeah. while acknowledging its impossibility, all mm -hmm. the while hoping for its possibility. As our poet in residence, Adam, with regards to your own practice drafting, what is it? How do you know when to abandon your poems? And is that something that other poets talk about? Do you swap redrafting tips? Maybe we aren't revising as much as we have to here. Or, of course, the, the danger, too, is that, you know, you might get a poem out there, but then every poet says, well, you really should have worked on that. <laughs> or, or they say, you know, you know, that's a nice poem, but I think you overworked it. <laughs> that's, that's a thing, too. I was reading an essay recently by uh, the, the great American poet G.C. Waldrop. You know, he's known to publish books very quickly. And he said that a fellow poet accused him of publishing too much and that he wasn't spending enough time in revising. And his retort to this poet was, well, you know, it took you 15 years between your first and second books. So you're spending too long here. You know, <laughs> uh, at, at the end of the day, we all have to find the, the, the way that works for us. For me, 
Uh, how do I know when a poem is done? Uh, I guess the biggest test is whether I could read it in front of a group of strangers and not feel embarrassed by anything in it. That seems to be the acid test right there. Um, you know, and as such, I live in a constant state of revision. I, I think the uh, the joke for most poets is that, you know, we write something and, uh, you know, you suddenly think that it's the most brilliant thing that's ever happened. And then you return to it two days later and you're just horrified by what you thought was so great. The The best advice I was ever given as a student by one of my professors was write a couple poems, put them in a drawer, and then come back to them a year later. And whatever still works for you is what's worth keeping. Um, and that's not going to be very much. For me, seeing as I'm always in this constant state of revision, I'm, I'm always looking for material to revise. You know, sometimes I feel like uh, Jason Statham's character in Crank 2, High Voltage, uh, because, because instead of electricity, I'm chasing language for that charge that will keep me productive. Um, or to be a little less highbrow about it, I think Tobias Wolff, uh, the great American uh, novelist and, and short story writer, nailed it when he said that he loves the revision process because it gives him the chance to work the text like a dog works a bone until he can finally crack that bone and get to the marrow. For me, having the opportunity to revise is an exercise in pushing any kind of anxiety about my work away. As long as I have work to revise, I have work to do. And so long as I'm working, I'm working toward new and hopefully better poems. You know, so um, I think revision is the default state for most poets. You know, we're always refining lines, always swapping manuscripts, always attending workshops or giving readings to test the, the work. And that's why I tend to view poets more like being mechanics and, and laboratory scientists than lute playing fawns or turtlenecked hipsters. You know, we're always repairing, always tinkering, always experimenting. You know, that said, as a teacher, I'm often at war with my students who've taken Allen Ginsberg's advice, which he, a constant reviser, did not take about first thought, best thought. You know, they, they often hold this up as a religious saying, particularly when I ask them to revise their work. Um, you know, they, they claim that their work is more raw and honest, or rather it's, it's at its best when it's most raw and honest, meaning it has not been revised. You know, there are moments when this rawness and honesty can work, usually in small lyric fragments. I think for a food-based analog, I'd say sushi is a great example of that. But if what the student has is a 15-ounce porterhouse steak or a four-pound potato for a poem, they're going to need to cook it and cook it long if they want it to reach its true potential. By way of example, I'd like to read this poem by Marianne Chan from her excellent book, All Heathens. Now, the title in first stanza alone could have worked as a funny, almost offhand bit of social commentary that would have fit perfectly in Instagram's three by four boxes. But what makes this such a great poem for me is how she allows the poem to unfurl according to its own intelligence, moving beyond its initial conceit to embrace something much larger and more resounding than what we initially imagined. And this is When the Man at the Party Said He Wanted to Own a Filipino by Marianne Chan. When the man at the party said he wanted to own a Filipino, I should have said that all I've ever wanted was to own a 50-year-old white man, which is what he was, but I didn't say that because it wasn't true. Instead, I said nothing, but I almost said amicably, yes, our bodies are banging, aren't they? Our skin is leather upholstery beneath the savage sun. Our eyes are fruits fallen from the highest trees. The bottoms of our unshod feet, the color of amethyst. I almost said, we will parade around your living room in a linen cloth and feed you turtle eggs and cornioles meat from a porcelain dish. I almost said, I'll be your Filipino, you be my Viking. We'll ride in a boat together 
I'll wear your horny helmet. But I said nothing. At that party, I wanted to be liked, which is my tragic flaw. I always find myself on the street smiling at people who look to be neo-Nazis. I call it a safety smile. Rarely do they smile back, but I would hug them if they needed it, if I think it would spare me. I used to wonder if this amenability was inherited. Raha Humabon, a Filipino king in the 1500s, did not resist Magellan's missionary agenda. Humabon greeted Magellan and his Christian lord with friendship. Maybe out of genuine religious feeling, or maybe servitude and friendship are a type of fire retardant, protection from the torches that burn down the villages of the chiefs who refused to kneel. Of course, there were some who refused to kneel. And maybe this is also something inherited, along with everything else, all the possible variations. And it doesn't take me long to realize the flaws in this notion of an inherited friendliness. When I was 13 or 14, the white husband of my parents' friend showed me pictures of his Filipino wife in different bikinis, the ones she sent him in letters before he hopped on a plane to the Philippines to marry her. He had a five by seven album full of these photographs, these flirtations. It made him nostalgic to sift through them. What's good about my wife, he said, is that she's easy on the eyes. A tuft of his chest hair appeared from the collar in his shirt, and the soul inside of me nearly choked on its own regurgitations. Before I could ask if he'd sent her pictures of himself, I heard his wife's bright cackle from the other room, like the firing of artillery from a distant ship. I noted that she was not easy on the ears, that she was not easy at all. I realize now that this story was never about us being owned, because we will always own ourselves. This story is about the way the world believes that it owns us, holding its album of pictures in its wishful hands. And we are not amenable as much as we are insidious. We are the corneals who, after being eaten alive by a whale, enter the whale's body and take small, tender bites of the whale's enormous heart. As a reader rather than as a writer, I'm always interested to look at drafts and redrafts of famous works, although I, I wonder how much of it is seeing something taking shape and how much of it is, on my part, a sort of pseudo-religious awe at being around almost holy relics. I certainly think there's something reassuring about seeing great authors not reaching perfection right away. That would be just too unbearable. There's comfort, I think, in seeing these great writers starting with bad ideas before mm-hmm. moving on to the right ones. And so for me, the famous example is, and of course, no episode is, is complete without a mention, it's, it's Elliot and um, The Wasteland. <laughs> um, Faber published a facsimile of various drafts of The, the Wasteland yeah. back in 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was good. But what I quite liked was the app that they did. Faber did an app of The Wasteland. I didn't know that. It doesn't work on phones so much. It's on, on tablets. Yeah. So I guess that kind of dates it a little bit when you were thinking yeah. apps more for, for tablets. But uh, you can look at the various drafts that way. And um, you also get, for added value, you get Elliot um, himself and um, Ted Hughes both reading The Wasteland too. So you get your value for money with that. Yeah. 
what one learns from looking at Elliot's drafts is that the, the poem originally was much longer, almost twice as long as the, the final published version, as is famous, you know, if you know anything about the sort of literary history of the modernist era, um, everyone knows that Ezra Pound um, was this the editor who did so much to transform the wasteland into the poem that we know now. Elliot seems to have followed pretty much all of Pound's suggested changes. Elliot himself also um, removed large sections. Apparently there was shorter poems that used, that were meant to break up um, the, the different sections, um, be between sections, and Pound suggested those go. And the famous opening lines of The Wasteland, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the deadland, that wasn't in place in the early drafts. That didn't appear until the second page of the typescript. So you, when you look at those facsimiles of, of the drafts, you get a real sense of the, the, the growth of the poem from the sort of incohate beginnings to, you know, the, the masterpiece that we all know today. Yeah. Adam, yeah. Adam, have you spent much time in archives <laughs> gazing at the bad handwriting of great poets? I have. I, I, I certainly have. I mean, you know, just, just to comment a little bit on what you said, though, I think I think there's often this myth, too, along with the idea of the immaculate poem, that the book is the result of only that poet's input. You know, and just to speak personally with my book, I had countless individuals, poets largely, who read the book and offered suggestions and changed things around. And, and so it always seems disingenuous to say that this book is written by this person when you consider how many different hands were in it to make it better. To your second question with the, the archives, the first thing that pops in my mind are Elizabeth Bishop's drafts of one art. Uh, you know, the art of losing is not hard to master, that, uh, that poem. I think it's common practice nowadays to share these drafts with students in writing programs so as to give them, as I was given, hope that a poem that begins so badly in drafts, and this is like this poem begins horrifically. It's, it's so heartening to see that, uh, you know, a master like Bishop could start the poem off writing about uh you know losing car keys and stuff like that it begins so badly in drafts but it eventually becomes something so powerfully ubiquitous a couple of years ago i spent some time at the university of texas at austin's ransom center which i highly recommend to, to any literary-minded person who might be able to travel within the next couple of years and there i went through e cummings manuscripts which were again heartening um there's nothing spectacular in his uh, initial drafts yeah, you start off um, embracing the drafts because, you know, it allows you to see the authors as being human. And when you get to the final draft, uh, all the good work of looking at their bad handwriting and coffee stains on the papers undone when you realize they probably are geniuses, actually, after all. That's, you know, they, yeah. Everyone has a talent one out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to go back to Groundhog Day, my pet theory on the film is that the film is, is kind of like a poem itself or functions like a poem. Mm. It has its own rhythm. Poetry is nothing if it's not rhythm. And the getting up, the listening to Sonny and Cher's I Got You Babe, the getting through the day, the going to sleep, waking up again, and it's Sonny and Cher again. It, it, it creates its own sort of rhythm for the film. And that repetition reminds me of the way poetry uses refrains. So that idea that um, of rhythm and repeating lines, building a sense of momentum, it feels very similar to what Ramus is doing as the director and Ruben yeah. is doing as scriptwriter. And I guess Murray, as the, yeah. um, the actor, the three of them together seem to be working really effectively as joint auteurs. What encourages me to continue seeing the film 
as a function, kind of like a poem itself, is yeah. have you ever seen a mainstream Hollywood film, certainly from the 90s, have you ever seen a film like that that features so much poetry? It's, it's, it's really striking, actually, once you notice it. <laughs> You know, at one point, Rita quotes of all people, Walter Scott, <laughs> my countryman. And as we famously learn, um, she studied French poetry, which leads to the brilliant line where Phil can't help himself but blur out, what a waste of time, um, which leads to him having to repeat that whole thing again because he ruined the moment by doing that. Mm. He later himself quotes some French poetry, although I did some research and it's not poetry as such. It's um, a free adaptation of um, lyrics by Jacques Brel, the, the, the Belgian, the Belgian songwriter, uh, it translates as, the girl I will love is like a fine wine that gets a little better every morning. <laughs> I think I prefer it in French, to be honest. Uh, yeah, yeah. Cower poem right there. Yeah, <laughs> we're back to Instagram, aren't we? <laughs> as I read at the start of the show, uh, a Coleridge poem, Phil recites a Coleridge poem, and he's seen reading a book, an anthology, I presume, called Poetry for All Moods. I think people place too much emphasis on their careers. I wish we could all live in the mountains at high altitude. That's where I see myself in five years. How about you? Oh, I agree. I just like to go with the flow, see where it leads me. What's well, led you here? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's about a million miles from where I started out in college. You weren't uh, in broadcasting or journalism? Mm-mm. Believe it or not, I studied 19th century French poetry. <laughs> what a waste of time. I mean, for someone else, that would be an incredible waste of time. It's so bold of you to choose that. It's incredible. You must be a very, very strong person. So to add a little more ballast to the boat of our theory about this film and poetry, let me remind you, if you don't already know, that Murray himself is one of the US's most famous poetry fans. If you Google Bill Murray in poetry, You'll, you'll find an embarrassment of uh, articles and videos detailing his love of verse. There's loads. There's loads. There's video clips. There's articles on Oprah.com, on Rolling Stone's website, all over the place. And indeed, on that Oprah.com article, Murray recommends poems by Naomi Nye Shihab, uh, Galway Kinnell, Thomas Lux, and uh, Lucille Clifton. So he's got good taste. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even better, actually. If you want to seal the deal... Um, about Murray and poetry, what I would ask you to do is go to YouTube and look up the um, the short clip, I think it's about six minutes long, in which uh, Murray reads poetry to a room for the construction workers. Um, I think it was a few years ago, they were refurbing Poets House in New York and uh, he came along, you know, because he's a big supporter of Poetry House in uh, New York. And he read poems by Billy Collins, Emily Dickinson and, I've only ever seen this name written down, so excuse me if I get the pronunciation wrong. Lorene Niedecker? Niedecker? Niedecker. Yeah, Niedecker. Uh, he reads poems by them, and uh, YouTube has evidence, folks, so so check it out. And I, I would say I think it's very telling that Murray's an Emily Dickinson fan, because famously her whole thing was to tell it slant. And uh, if there's ever if there's ever an American actor whose style could be described as, you know, slant, it has to be Murray, you know? His his line readings in this film are so exquisite. They're, they're, no. I mean, that is the, that actually is the film. It's his line readings. Because as you said, if you were to read a script of the film, you wouldn't say, wow, this is a, a belly thumper, you know, this isn't a, a, a rib cracker. Uh, the entire comedy, it seems to me, is it's Murray's line readings. Yeah. That's why you laugh, just the way, the, you know, his timing and the inflection. Yeah, I totally agree. It's just like poetry. You know? <laughs> For those of you that really want to walk out, 
What's this gal's name again? Oh yeah, Emily Dickinson. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, of chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky, of visitors, the fairest, for occupation, this, the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. Well, hey, not, not to take us too far away from poetry, but I, I have to ask Colin, favorite Bill Murray film? I am going to answer Scrooged. Uh, I love Scrooge. It's got, I mean, it's, I do. Uh, well, I mean, the ending is, is kind of sentimental, but because uh, it's Bill Murray doing it, he, you know, yes. and he's not a sentimental guy, he, he really sells it to you. And I really, um, I can't watch the end of it without getting a lump in my throat. And if you want to talk about great casts, where else are you going to get David Johansson from New York Dolls <laughs> and Carol Kane oh. and John Forsyth from uh, Dynasty and, uh, yeah. Aaron Allen from Raiders of the Lost Ark in there is the yeah the, and love interest I think yeah and and Zed from uh, Police Academy too so it's a real cornucopia of talent sir you know I I was thinking when I was rewatching Groundhog Day I kept thinking about Scrooge um, and not to be unfair to Groundhog Day but they both seem at least the character arc in both the films are the same but I prefer Scrooge for, for many reasons. But I agree. I think that uh, that's a great film. How about you? Are you a Scrooge guy or uh, something else? I love Scrooge. But I think my favorite Bill Murray film is Rushmore. There's so many good lines in that. And just his interaction between him and Jason Schwartzman and the ridiculousness of both of these people. Neither of them are a good suitor for the, the, the female teacher, but the, uh, the kind of war they have with each other and the, the line delivery is so good. <laughs> I, and a, and the Billy in the film is Scottish, so you know, obviously, I love it. Of course, yeah, that was it. <laughs> it's the only reason I like it, but uh, yeah, no, it's always good to see Scottish representation in films. Yeah, because you've got well, no, him, and then also uh, Brian Cox is the headmaster. Of course, two Scots. Oh, yeah. one of the greatest and, and films of all time. Well, I want to finish by taking a quick look at Light Verse and Groundhog Day, and the idea of comedy as being appreciated, but not to paraphrase Rodney Dangerfield, respected. It's been a long-running trope in Hollywood that comedians or comic actors aren't viewed as artists until they can carry a dramatic film. You know, think of Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Adam Sandler, and of course, Bill Murray. And this got me thinking about why we constantly undervalue comedy and how I, as a poet, along with a hell of a lot of other poets, take umbrage at the notion of light or comedic verse. A big part of this, I think, is that it can be very hard to get people to take poetry seriously in the first place. So anything that further erodes the seriousness of poetry, and I apologize, I'm going to sound like Joe Bluth in Arrested Development here, uh, organizing magicians union that demands the public take them seriously. Um, but I find this deeply frustrating. As the Scottish poet Robin Robertson wrote in 2018, I'm allergic to light verse because it seems a betrayal of the purpose of poetry. Or, as Eliot, who we mentioned as earlier, as we are uh, contractually obliged by law to do so, said, Poets in our civilization, as it exists at present, must be difficult. So it, it makes me wonder, must art involve suffering? Must uh, poetry be deadly serious? Uh, I would say no on both counts, but I, I do have my limits. Um, confession time here a little bit. 
a few years ago, uh, a major uh, poet visited my school and declared in a writing workshop that everything is a poem. The air is a poem. The water is a poem. You don't even need language. Use symbols. Uh, and, and that could possibly tie back into our Zodiac theory from a couple uh, podcasts ago. But this notion was incredibly liberating for students to hear, particularly those who didn't want to write poems, because they could then, as they did indeed, staple a couple of sheets of paper together and then call it water, under which they and the poet pretended to swim for a few minutes. I, I still have flashbacks to sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's a, you know, a comedy sketch in there for you, Adam. It, it's, it's just bizarre. It, it really, you know, I have this theory about if, if you're a famous poet, um, which some people would argue is a kind of oxymoron in some ways, but if you're a famous poet and you reach a certain age, at least in the United States, I think you tend to go one of two routes. You either go Dickinson or you go Whitman. If you go Dickinson, you become this kind of hermit. If you go Whitman, you become this kind of uh, jubilant mystic. Uh, and and I, I don't know which one's better necessarily, but I know in this moment, something inside me really hurt. And, you know, this wasn't the worst sin ever committed against poetry, but it did destroy a lot of the work that I'd done that semester to convince students how important and powerful words are and how much responsibility and work comes with writing a poem. But still, not to sound like a Scrooge, I'm also someone who loves humor and believes everything should have some humor in it, including poems. And the best kind of humor, like the best kind of poetry, reawakens our sense of being and reignites our sense of curiosity about the world around us. So with that, I'd like to read this poem about construction workers by David Berman from his book, Actual Air. It's called New York, New York. A second New York is being built a little west of the old one. Why another, no one asks. Just build it, and they do. The city is still closed off to all but the work crews who claim it's a perfect mirror image. Truthfully, each man works on the replica of the apartment building he lives in, adding new touches like cologne dispensers, rock gardens, and doorknobs marked for grand hotels. Improvements here and there, done secretly and off the books. None of the supervisors notice or mind. Everyone's in a wonderful mood, joking, taking walks through the side streets that the single reporter allowed inside is described as unleavened with reminders of the old city's complicated past, but giving off some blue perfume from the early years of Earth. The men grow to love the peaceful town. It becomes more difficult to return home at night, which sets the wives to worrying. The yellow soups are cold, the sunsets quick. The men take long breaks on the fire escapes, waving across the quiet spaces to other workers, meditating on their perches. Until one day, the sky fills with charred clouds, tool belts rattle at the rising wind, something is wrong. A foreman stands in the avenue, pointing binoculars at a massive gray mark moving towards us in the eastern sky. Several voices, what, what is it? Pigeons, he yells through the wind. Do you know, this This reminds me, it's kind of like um, Sindoki, New York, the, the poem, mm. if you've ever seen mm. Sindoki, New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is another film that's both uh, funny and <laughs> existentially <Yeah>. terrifying. <laughs> exactly. Now, Adam, like yourself, uh, I like a little light verse too. I'm going to read a poem now that I especially treasure because it's based on a, a place in my hometown of Bonnerig, Bonnerig and Last Wade. In Last Wade, there is a famous writing retreat, the Hawthorne Den writing retreat, owned by the Hines family. 
of the 57 varieties. Are they connected then to, to former presidential candidate John Kerry's wife? Yes, yes, that's right. Um, I was going to raise that, and then I thought, that's a bit obscure, but <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, it, 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 it secures this idea that all poetry goes back to Pittsburgh on some level. Or, or Bunnerig and Last Wade. And just to complete the circuit, I should mention as well that in Bunnerig and Last Wade, Walter Scott, who was quoted by Rita in Groundhog Day, he lived there for six years at one point. So um, it, it does all add up, folks. I know that I say this in every episode, but it does all add up. <laughs> anyway, um, the Hawthorne Den Writing Retreat, um, it's quite to the, I guess, to the north of Bonnerig and, and Last Wade, and um, it's quite isolated. And most of the people who live in Bonnerig don't have no idea that there's a famous writing retreat there, um, not least because um, it's essentially a castle that you can't get close to because it's um, screened off by trees. One of the writers who I presume was there was Wendy Cope, who um, I don't know if she's got much of an American audience, but she's known in Britain as a, a writer of comic verse, light verse, but of a very superior kind, I would say. This is a poem from her a collection, if I don't know. It's called Reading Berryman's Dream Songs at the Writer's Retreat. And uh, it's about a trip a trip out in Bonnerig, uh, my hometown. I recognise where she goes to. And you, you might re- recognise, as the title suggests, she writes in a kind of Berryman-esque kind of tone. So here's mm. Reading Berryman's Dream Songs at the Writer's Retreat. Wendy went a-swimming. It was dreadful. One small boy careless under her did surface and did butt her on the chin. Of space to swim was hardly any. Fearful shoutings, bodies from the springboard splash when jumping in. Why no school? cried agey Wendy to herself. Not loud. Why little beggars swing into me on Friday afternoon? Why not in cage? Learn tables. Out and dress and buy bananas. Yogurt? No. Need spoon. Once more to Hawthorne Den through Scottish fog. Back up to poet's lair and sit on bed. Is your bored bones all by yourself with read and write and being deep? Not for a moment. Now a little sleep. <laughs> so, I mean, it appeals to me on the on the level of a of a sort of parody of Berman. It appeals to me on the level of I know that swimming pool that she went to. And absolutely no, I love that she brings Mr. Bones into it. It feels like Berman, a much lighter version of Berman. Yeah. yeah, if you can imagine it. I mean, it, it, the the very idea in itself conceptually is a bit far fetched, but uh, she brings it all together very nicely. And uh, for that, I thank her. Stay Safe, which received the Catherine A. Morkin Prize and was published by Saraband Books in January 2020. Ayn received an MFA in Creative Writing from New York University and a BA in English from Washington University in St. Louis, where she was awarded a Howard Nemiroff Writing Scholarship and the Roger Conan Hatch Prize for Poetry. She is the co-founder and co-host of Debut Review, a virtual reading series celebrating debut poetry collections. My name is Emma Hine, and my debut poetry collection, Stay Safe, was published in January 2021 by Saraband Books. In a minute, I'll be reading a poem from this collection about the movie Jaws, but first I wanted to talk a little about poetic cinema. There's a lot to be said about how film is poetic and poetry is cinematic, on the level of imagery, of language, of music, of structure, you name it. For instance, I recently rewatched When Harry Met Sally, and I was struck by how the interviews of couples that are sprinkled throughout function a lot like poems. 
specifically those poems in a collection that like relate to a central theme or thread but have nothing to do with the speaker or the main drive of the book in particular poems that belong in the collection precisely because they gesture past its immediate concern today though i want to talk specifically about the movie jaws when i saw jaws for the first time i was in my mid-20s in a tiny brooklyn apartment with a disastrously slanted floor and a leaking ceiling and my boyfriend, now my fiancé, and I watched it in bed one evening after work. At that point, I was writing the poems that would eventually become Stay Safe, and I'd already arguably too many poems about sharks, whales, deep-sea creatures, but after we saw Jaws, I couldn't stop talking about it, so much so that my boyfriend actually begged me to write about it instead. So I did, and I'll read you the poem in a little bit. But first, I went deep into Spielberg internet and read about all the difficulties they had with the animatronic shark. How they ended up building three models that would move across different axes, but they did this before testing these models in salt water. And it turned out that while the animatronic sharks worked in freshwater, they corroded quickly in the ocean. So Spielberg's team had to wait for new saltwater-proof sharks to be built, but during this time they couldn't stop filming. And it was this period of time that forced Spielberg to find ways to represent the shark in scenes without actually showing it. Originally, the shark was going to be more featured, just like the animatronic shark all the time. Um, And so that's how you get the incredible scene with the yellow barrels when they're racing across the surface of the ocean. That other scene where the dock is rushing through the water, being pulled by the shark or pushed by it. Basically, all of those moments where there's something easy and low budget that's standing in for the shark. And I was fascinated by this movie for a number of reasons. There's um, sheer poetic terror uh, and the idea of something huge and intelligent underwater. Um, There's so much beauty in the idea of the mechanics of an animatronic shark, kind of its its internal skeleton, its workings. I love a good beach setting. I love suspense. But I think what keeps drawing me back to it and why I ended up writing about it and why I wanted to talk about it here is the way that the formal constraint that's imposed by the failing animatronics actually made the movie genius, or at least more genius. If we saw the shark earlier in the film, I genuinely don't think that Jaws would be the iconic film it is today. The way Spielberg put it was, what you don't see is generally scarier than what you do see. And as poets, I think we have a lot to learn from this, um, balancing the seen and the unseen. And what Spielberg is really talking about and what he really did is metaphor. How can we work best with metaphor? How can we make yellow barrels both signify a shark and crucially be even more terrifying than if we saw the shark itself? And so thinking about that, thinking about Jaws and metaphor and animatronic sharks, I want to read a poem that I wrote about this film and about some of these concepts. Jaws. I don't realize I'm starved for the color until the blood washes up on the beach. I'm craving red, but still haven't seen the creature, just the quick whip and slither of its tail in the wake. And then there I am, facing the skin side of the animatronic shark, the slick apertures of its eyes, the mythic teeth, the anvil nose beating the deck, cracking windows. The shark, like the moon, is pockmarked, unstoppable, never showing its hidden side. 
Surely space is just another underwater. The messages we send from satellites, a bleeding haze of infrared. This is my blood type. This is where I keep my body at night. And I tell no one about the times my body, taking over, stands waist deep in the surf, some wild need inside me ticking into place. Thank you so much. And that's it for another episode of Poetry Goes to the Movies. Next time we'll be looking at good poets, bad films. Tune in then. <laughs>